Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. I'm Medina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Good Omens. Good Omens was written by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett and was published in 1990. And the film adaptation, which is an Amazon TV show, came out this year, 2019, and was showrun by Neil Gaiman himself. Neil Gaiman himself. <laughs> Neil himself, just like his Twitter handle. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're we're doing Neil Gaiman again. Yes. Everyone is shocked and surprised. <laughs> Everyone told us you can't do it. You're not allowed to. You've done too much Gaiman. You can never do too much Neil Gaiman. No, you can't. Although I think we're at our peak because I think this is about it, right? In terms of adaptations. I for mean, him. we could do American Gods, but that show is like. Oh endless. yeah, yeah. That's like <laughs> an ongoing, yeah. heavy show. Yeah. So probably not American Gods. No. So, but who knows what is in store for us in the future with Neil Gaiman? Yes. Uh, a Sandman adaptation has been in talks for many a year, literally as long as Sandman <laughs> has been out, which is like thirty years. <laughs> so who knows if that'll happen? Mm-hmm. I think. The more we've seen that is capable with TV, I think the more options that become available. Oh, yeah. And we've talked about this before, but it's really cool to see books in a TV show and not just in movies because there's so many more options, um, more opportunities to tell the entire story and not feel like you have to cut a lot of the plot. And characters, no. so... Or overly stuff it to fill out a show. Yeah. Because, I mean, in this case, Good Omens was only six episodes long. Yeah. It was, like, the exact length mm-hmm. that it they thought it needed to be and no more. Exactly. So, like, really, the flexibility of that, and especially with, like, streaming services, mm-hmm. they're free to, like, do these short runs that potentially won't have another season or That's won't go true. anywhere else. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, the possibilities are endless. And who knows what is in store for us in the future. I know. With Gaiman. Yes. But right now, let's talk about Good Omens. Yes. So excited to talk about this. We were so excited when we heard that this was going to be a show because Ian and I read this book together, actually, like a little bit after we started dating. Yeah. Yeah. We had like a summer of um, us reading the same book. This was like a pre it was like a precursor to the podcast. It was uh, <laughs> Fight Club was another one. We would read chapter by chapter and call and just talk about it on the phone. Yeah. And this was one of them. And I loved it so much the first time I read it. Mm-hmm. And I spoiler alert, really enjoyed it again. Yes. So, yeah, I'm it, it's it's a great story and I'm excited to talk about it right now. Mm-hmm. Let's Shall set, we? let's set the stage. <laughs> so. Back to the beginning, we're in the Garden of Eden. Yes. Shit has just gone down. <laughs> <laughs> some people made some mistakes involving There was fruit. an apple. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we basically get a summary in both versions of uh, this story that kind of summarizes the creation of the universe, mm-hmm. when that happened, uh, how Adam and Eve play into it all. Yeah. And we find out where two of our main characters, Crowley... And Aziraphale were during most of it. Yes. Originally known as Crawley. (laughs) (laughs) Crawley was the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve to eat Mm -hmm. the apple. 
Um, and after this all happens, he kind of uh, slithers up to the angel guarding the eastern gate. And it's like, wow, that didn't go over very well, did it? <laughs> <laughs> and then the two of them are kind of like just talking about like, what's going to happen? You know, where does this put us in the future? And they share this kind of joke because the angel Aziraphale has given his flaming sword to Adam and Eve because he felt bad for them. Yeah, <laughs> that was a great moment. And also comes up again later, which I totally forgot about. But yeah, yeah, this is the start of their ongoing friendship and kind of like partnership. Mm -hmm. And the show actually gives us w way later in episode three, uh, the whole first half of the episode yeah. is just their backstory through of the ages. their relationship through the ages. This was one of my favorite parts of the show. This part was so good. It was amazing because um, we haven't mentioned it yet, but um, Crowley is played by David Tennant, and mm -hmm. then Aziraphale the Angel is played by Michael Sheen. And who cast them? Because this was the perfect casting. It was dream casting. Like, as soon as they announced those actors... We're like, oh... This is going to be Of course, great. obviously. <laughs> Who else would you get? And basically, like, everyone also unanimously agreed online. Yeah. They were like, yeah, obviously. Exactly. <laughs> and they're just like, their chemistry, they're back and forth with each other. And I loved getting, because, I mean, they do have quite a bit of screen time in the plot of the yeah. book and the show. But just getting this really, like, meaty chunk of them being mm -hmm. together in episode three was just excellent. I loved seeing them. Yeah, and seeing them in different contexts, in mm -hmm. different outfits. Throughout time. Different haircuts yeah. for uh, Crowley, at least, and just different circumstances are excellent. One of my favorites was uh, one of the first ones when they were watching Noah's Ark being built. <laughs> and <laughs> Aziraphale's trying to explain how God is going to drown everyone here. <laughs> I know. And it's just like the locals. Not like yeah. the world. It's just like locally. Yeah. It also is one of my favorite lines where uh, Aziraphale's like, but it's okay because afterwards God is going to make a rainbow. We're going to introduce the rainbow. And it's a symbol of how he's not going to drown everyone again. <laughs> well, technically in this, in the show, it's a, she God is a, she in the it show. Is. Do they not? That's not a reveal till the very end though. Right? No, they, I think they call God. She throughout. Really? Mm -hmm. Oh, I totally missed. Cause I caught it at the very end and I thought it was a line where Aziraphale says something like, Oh, she works in mysterious ways or something like that. And I thought in, to me, that was the first time that it was ever, I thought, I, I don't you, know. We, you could be totally right, and I, like, missed it throughout, but, yeah, but God is a woman, which yes. is which is pretty cool, so. Mm -hmm. Yes, God a murderous is, woman. like, the narr <laughs> narrator, and it's the voice of uh, Francis McDormand plays God. I was also going to ask about that, because, like, I didn't make that connection until, like, just a moment ago, uh, taking notes that I was like, oh, if God's a woman, maybe it's the narrator. Oh, you didn't know that that was God? No, is that, like, official, like? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe I read it in like a because I was reading a bit about the mm -hmm. show before we watched it. But yeah, it was God the whole time. OK, yeah. <laughs> to the plot twist. It was God all along. <laughs> well, I'm obviously a little behind <laughs> on uh, on the news. But yeah, so the narrator's God, which is mm -hmm. I, I like that a lot. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, the, just the narration throughout history. Not the narration, the... The plot points of, yeah. of them together. Yeah, was, was so good. And we also kind of find out that, you know, they have kind of this um, agreement, essentially, where they they both acknowledge that they're good deed like Crowley's evil deeds and Aziraphale's good deeds kind of cancel each other out. Yeah. So does it really matter who's doing them? Yeah. So like if, you know, Crowley already has to travel for a bad deed, maybe he'll do one of Aziraphale's good deeds while he's at it. Yeah. It saves time. Exactly. And effort. <laughs> <laughs> and after a while, Aziraphale is kind of convinced to agree to this as well. Yeah. And it's funny, and we see this in these flashbacks in the show, but it's kind of explained to us in the book how Crowley and Aziraphale are just in the world all the time. Yeah. And where, like, the other demons and the other angels aren't really out and about as much on Earth. So they just come to love Earth. They come to love humans and to love just the mortal world in general. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Aziraphale has a bookshop. He loves collecting old books. He loves sushi. He loves sushi. Like, he has all these, like, things that he likes and he enjoys. Crowley has his car that he's kept in mint condition. His His house plants. His house plants. (laughs) You know, they have all these things that they like, music, all all of these mortal things that they've come to enjoy about the world. Exactly. And that really comes through... Um, in the flashbacks and then also in the book when they're talking about these characters. And while they have grown to love mortal things, they've also grown to be kind of fond of each other. Yeah. Because as they as the world changes around them, they also have changed. Yeah, they're kind of like, I don't know, especially the way uh, Michael Sheen and David Tennant play it, where at one point I love it where David Tennant's like, <laughs> he's like, or Michael Sheen says, I, I don't even like you. And uh, Tennant's like, oh, you do. Like, <laughs> just kind of like Sheen's reluctance to agree yeah. that they're friends. And Crowley's kind of like. You love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just the best casting you could possibly ask Absolutely. for. Uh, the plot really kicks in, though, uh, about 11 years prior to like the present day of the story. Yeah where Crowley is summoned to a meeting of demons Mm -hmm. and discovers that uh, the beginning of the end of the world is upon them. Yes. He must deliver the baby Antichrist to a human family, and then in 11 years' time... When he's 11. Because I guess that's... (laughs) That's important. (laughs) That's the age that every young man's ready to... Take over the world. The angst is built up enough. They're... That's when Armageddon will happen, yeah. apparently. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yes, yeah, so that's kind of like it's the beginning of this countdown in 11 years. Mm-hmm. And Crowley's tasked with taking the child, uh, the Antichrist, to switch with a pre-selected family's child. Yes. So, essentially, this American uh, ambassador. ambassador who is, you know, in London or in England and his wife is giving birth, they're going to switch out the Antichrist with their baby. Yes. At the um, hospital run by nuns. Yes. The the Order of Chattering Nuns. Yes. (laughs) But they're also Satanists. They're also Satanists, too. Yes, we can't forget. They need their cooperation to switch the babies. (laughs) (laughs) And so Crilly does this. He goes to the hospital and, of course... The whole thing goes pear-shaped. 
because due to, uh, as Curly put it, basic human incompetence. Yes. Uh, the Antichrist gets switched with just kind of this very unassuming Normal English family. Yeah, English family's child. In the show, they kind of address um, when um, Mr. and Mrs. Young, who's a normal family, show up. The nuns are kind of like, oh, we're not expecting you for like a week. Yeah. And Mrs. Young is kind of like, well, I mean, now is when my kid's being born. <laughs> like, you can't predict these things. And that's just like such the nature of this book and the show in general that like the best laid plans of mice and men, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like just fall to shit immediately. Uh, Crowley comes in and the way it plays out is Mr. Young is waiting outside and Crowley sees him just assumes that he's in on this whole scheme mm-hmm. and is like, oh, has it begun? Where's the like delivery? And Mr. Young says, oh, room three or whatever. Yeah. And then so basically the Antichrist gets put in with Mr. and Mrs. Young and then they <laughs> take Mr. and Mrs. Young's baby, give that to the ambassador, assuming that that's the Antichrist. And then they take the extra baby from the ambassador's family and quietly give him up for adoption. <laughs> uh, assumedly. Yes. <laughs> it's not entirely clear. Yes. Uh, yeah, but the whole, and I love they kind of do like a whole um, visualization of this with like a card trick mm-hmm. and swapping of the cards. In the show. In the show. And this was something actually that I said a couple episodes ago with Murder on the Orient Express with how... This is a very creative way to visually show something like this that yeah. can kind of be confusing mm-hmm. in, you know, a fun, unique way that I wish that movie had done more often. Mm-hmm. And in this instance, I was like, yeah, this like works really well. And I, you know, it, it works well to the quirkiness of the show. Yeah. And there's kind of a lot of uh, freedom in this show of like interesting insert shots and kind of like visualizations of things. The way it's made is really interesting. It is. It's very kind of goofy and Mm -hmm. like. It reminded me. So I know Good Omens and Terry Pratchett in general have been compared to Douglas Adams, who wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But I'm thinking specifically of the movie and what they tried to do with some of the narrator, Mm -hmm. the narration and the little animated scenes and like, um, all that extra stuff that kind of just like it started out well and then like fell apart in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was also reminded a few times of like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, both in the book and the show. Yeah. Uh, kind of just in their freedom of doing quirky, fun, whatever the solution is to this like joke. Essentially, yeah. they'll do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's very effective in that way. Mm-hmm. But. Ultimately, the job is botched and yes. no one realizes it no. is also the problem. Mm-hmm. So later on, Crowley and Aziraphale get together. And when Aziraphale finds finds out about this information, they have this discussion about, do we want to actually have Armageddon? Mm-hmm. And maybe we should stop it because maybe we like Earth. Yeah, they bo- both kind of agree like, it would be terrible if the world ended. And there's some funny lines about 
how terrible it would be in hell, but also how <laughs> terrible it would be in heaven as well. Curly's like, we have all of the good musicians, <laughs> like all of them, <laughs> which is Zerophil is not happy about. Yeah. And there's a joke about um, heaven just playing the sound of music over and over on repeat <laughs> for eternity. <laughs> yeah. So this eventually coerces Aziraphale to agree. And their plan is they are going to go to where the child is growing up Yes. And they're going to influence this child by secretly, like, being involved in the kid's life. Yeah. And both give him good and bad advice and mm-hmm. kind of cancel each other out. Yeah. So hopefully the child will just grow up neutrally. Yeah. And Armageddon won't happen. Exactly. And it's a good compromise for them because, like, Aziraphale can't agree to, like, completely, like, either side. You know what I mean? They're, they're um... They're going to have someone that tries to influence the Antichrist to good and then someone that tries to influence him to evil. But, of course, it's the wrong Antichrist. Yes. <laughs> it's just a normal boy with the unfortunate name of Warlock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the nuns think that's the Antichrist. Yeah. So in the hospital, they convince the parents to name him Warlock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is one of the funniest. There's just so many great little oh jokes God. and fun bits in this. Yeah. But, yeah. So 11 years pass of them uh, trying to influence this child, and it culminates on the kid's 11th birthday when things are supposed to begin. Yes. The hellhound that the boy is promised by Satan is supposed to show up, mm-hmm. and his powers are supposed to come. Once he names the dog, he'll come into his powers. Yeah. And so they're at a birthday party. And Aziraphale and Crowley are there waiting to see what will happen, because if he names the dog... He's evil, and mm-hmm. if he turns the dog away, then Armageddon is averted. Yes, and meanwhile, Aziraphale is doing magic tricks for the kids, which is one of the funniest little bits. Not with his actual magic no. ability. It's like he's trying to do like... Sleight of hand. Yeah, but he's terrible at it. I love one of the little like updates to the story is that all the kids in their disinterest are all on their phones. Yes. Which is like, yeah, of course, they would just all be on their phones yes. in like the present day. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they quickly realize when... Uh, the hound doesn't arrive that, oh shit, this isn't the right kid. Like uh. something got, something's gone wrong <laughs> and they just know everything's kind of screwed. We lost the Antichrist. We lost the Antichrist. And of course, Crowley can't tell hell that because no. he is supposed to be in charge of this whole thing. He'd have to admit that he fucked it up. So he's like, oh, of course the hellhound got here. Everything's fine. Great. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. So meanwhile... While Aziraphale and Crowley are at Warlock's house, finding mm-hmm. out he's not the Antichrist, <laughs> we go to Adam, uh, the real Antichrist, yes. who's been growing up in this unassuming, small, quaint uh, English village. Yes. And when we find him, it's his birthday as well. He's uh-huh. 11. And he's hanging out with his four friends, or his three other friends. There's yes. four of them in total. And we kind of get this great little glimpse of what his, like, day-to-day life is with mm-hmm. his friends. And it's um pretty pretty much their kids. Yeah. It kind of <laughs> reminds me of, like, some type of movie of, like, childhood in the 50s. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're yeah. riding on their bikes everywhere. They're kind of, like, this gang, like, terrorizing the town, you know. Um, they're dirty. They, like, get into <laughs> all these 
scrapes and trouble and they're like feuding with like this other gang that's in the town they're just like a couple of 11 year old kids terrorizing adults you know exactly it's very wholesome uh sweet kind of like sunset yeah riding away on their bikes in the distance perfect yeah i remember when i first read the book these parts for me were kind of slow yeah. kind of dragged a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't really notice that this time, really. Maybe it's because I knew how everything played into it later on. I yeah. don't know how, how you felt about it, like, the second time around. I felt like sometimes they could feel out of place mm-hmm. because it was so, like, kind of, like, idyllic, almost like a blast to the past. And even in the show, I think at times it felt a little yeah. out of place, too. But I do kind of like that we figure out that this perfectness is because of Adam's power, basically. Yeah, later on, it's discovered that, like, the perfect weather and, Mm -hmm. like, the quality of the village and, like, a highway was once averted that was going to go right through the village for some reason. And Mm -hmm. so basically, like, Adam has subconsciously been influencing this town being perfect mm-hmm. throughout his life, which was it. I agree. I really liked kind of discovering that. Yeah. But I also just like that they're just kids, you know? Yeah. And they're just kind of like up to the usual, like kid shenanigans, you know, I did. T- there's one scene that's particularly great in the book where they're, uh, what they're playing like uh Spanish Inquisition. Oh yeah. <laughs> where they're <laughs> killing witches. Yeah. And, they get Pepper, the one girl in the gang, they get her younger sister to be the witch. Yeah. And it's just such a funny, like, cute scene mm-hmm. where the little sister doesn't understand, like, the game. the game at all. And they kind of do a version of that in the show, but it's, like, not nearly not as, as good. Not as effective. No. Yeah, it was just so, like, it was so clear and it reminded me of, like, games that I would play as a kid <laughs> as well. And Yeah. Yeah, it, it was... uh That scene in particular was very good. Yeah. So it's Adam's 11th birthday and he knows he's going to get a dog. And of course, the the hellhound shows up. Yes. But when the hellhound shows up, he hears Adam talking about the type of dog that he wants. And of course, Adam's will bends everything to it. So he's like, oh, I want a small dog and a a smart dog, like a clever dog. And of course, the hellhound immediately shrinks (laughs) (laughs) and becomes this cute little terrier. It is so cute in the show. Oh, my God. It's the cutest dog. It's the most adorable little dog. Yes. Uh, Now seems like as good a time as any to mention that the special effects in this show like, 90% of them are top-notch. Oh, yeah. They are so good. Really good. Like, and I mean, there's a lot of effects in this show. A lot of, like, I'm thinking of, in particular, the Hellhound before he turns into the small oh, dog. Oh, yeah. Looks really good. Mm-hmm. And uh, Crowley's Bentley mm-hmm. in this show. I'm certain that a lot of the shots of it are CGI, but it's, like, really hard to tell. Yeah. Uh, then there's, like, other monsters and aliens and, like... Wild shit. A lot of wild shit in this show. And the CGI, like, like I said, some of it you see and you're like, "Mm," you know, that feels like a a, a TV show, essentially. But like, yeah, most of it is really good. Oh, yeah. Like the quality of the production of this show. And maybe that's because it's only six episodes. Yeah, maybe. Maybe maybe they could put more into each episode. I don't know. But Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just 
really high quality top notch special effects yeah i enjoyed it and i felt like everything was super realistic and felt like it went with the flow of the show too it wasn't like let's just throw cgi and everything it was like no exactly relevant yeah all and i think part of that is well i won't get into it (laughs) i could talk about cgi and movies (laughs) and shows for like way too long and there's like way too much to talk about with this episode so let's just move along (laughs) anyway uh the dog the hellhound comes to Adam, and Adam names it Dog. (laughs) And honestly, Dog's uh, trajectory was kind of like my favorite. Oh, it was so funny. Like his whole metamorphosis as like he starts out as a hellhound, only bent on like blood and destruction. And then Adam wishes for him to be like a clever dog that chases rats and cats and (laughs) is just like cute. And he loves it. Yeah. Like dog is like, oh my God, this life is amazing. <laughs> like I, I chased a cat yesterday and it was the best experience I've ever had. And there's so many things to bark at. And I dug a <laughs> hole yesterday and like. <laughs> yeah, you're just getting all of his perspective on like yeah. just loving life He's now. He's like all the smells <laughs> that I have. <laughs> yeah, the per- you get a little bit of that in the show, but like much more in depth in the book and just all that. Everything concerning dog is just so funny and yes. so well done. <laughs> Anathema, or I'm sorry, anathema. Anathema, has, which is how the, the show. <laughs> I I still can't get behind that. Anathema yeah. is just a weird. It sounds like a respiratory condition or something. <laughs> anathema sounds like angelic and like beautiful. Anathema, I I can't get behind that no. pronunciation. Sounds like mesothelioma. (laughs) (laughs) I have anathema. (laughs) Anathema is a young witch. Yes. Who is the descendant of a woman known as Agnes Nutter. Yes. Who, as the book and show clearly state, was the only accurate prophet to ever walk the earth. Yes. And she wrote a whole book of her prophecies, which is the subtitle of Good Omens, the nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter, which <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is that like anywhere else? Like it wasn't on the cover of our book. Is that like, was it on the first version of the book? Like that subtitle? Do you know? Yeah, it's on the book. Is it? Yeah. Oh, it's in the red below. Is that it? Yeah. Oh, whoops. Anyway, <laughs> I'm really you can stri- probably edit that one out. <laughs> I'm really striking out today, aren't I? I'm just like, I'm not on it at Where all. Are you anyway? <laughs> uh, so, she lived like 300 years ago and just like just had these visions of the future. And so many of them were so funny in terms of like how she applied them. Yeah. Like everyone in her village is like, she's crazy. I saw her running the other day from nothing. And she says it's like good, good for, for your, your health. health. And she keeps washing her hands because she says there's like these tiny animals that cause you to get sick. <laughs> Also, we should eat more fiber. (laughs) I loved all those like little details. Oh, yeah. And she like sees the future and she writes it all down for her descendants before she is burned at the stake. Of course, she does have the last laugh because she puts gunpowder and nails in her skirt and blows up the whole town. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Including the witch hunter who was burning her alive, who was. Thou shalt not commit adultery, Pulsifer. (laughs) (laughs) Because I guess just like a bunch of these old like Christian witch finders had like overly Christian names. Yeah. That usually included the Ten Commandments. I don't know. (laughs) There were 
a lot of jokes that were funny in the book that just didn't quite translate to the show. I agree. You know, that being one of them where, I don't know, the whole, like, him being called adultery and then his full name being thou shall not commit adultery and, like, where that comes from. And, yeah. Like, even in the book, like, those jokes are so dense and quick mm-hmm. that sometimes you don't pick up on them. Yeah. And then in the show, like, when you have them coming even faster with less context, um, yeah, sometimes just, like, they don't stick. And it's one of those things where I think sometimes it feels like the show is telling the people that have already read the book, like, here's this thing, here's this thing, here's this thing. And it's not really about, like, the success of the setup and the joke. It's about acknowledging that we, like, put it in. Maybe, yeah. But it's to an extent where, like, people who aren't familiar with the book are going to be like, what was that? Yeah, no, I agree. It's not like a wink, wink, like, if you know the show, you'll see, or if you know the book, you'll see it. If you don't, it's fine. No, I agree. But it does feel like it's some of them, some of the jokes are not explained as well and probably didn't need to be in there. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, but I mean, Neil Gaiman wrote this series. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in some ways... You know, he was writing it without Terry Pratchett. Yeah. Terry Pratchett, unfortunately, died a few years ago. Um, and Neil Gaiman wanted to do the show kind of in honor of Terry Pratchett. And he wanted to do it well. Yeah. So I think there might have been more pressure on him to keep more of the book because it was Terry. That occurred to me as well. Like, he might have felt more obligated to keep it as pure to the book as possible. Yeah. And not deviate from it as much considering that, you know, Terry wasn't around to give his input. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's totally possible as well. Mm-hmm. So, But I agree with you that some of the jokes in the show work better than others. There's a specific scene, I'll, I'll talk about it later uh, in more detail, but I remember watching it being like, if I didn't read the book, I would have no idea what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. So, like, it even gets to that level sometimes of, like, distracting, I think. So, yeah. so. Agnes Nutter had compiled all of these predictions into a book that passed down from her generations, and now Anathema, a new young witch in the modern age, is using these prophecies to basically live her life and also is aware of the upcoming apocalypse because of them. Yeah. And she knows that she has a role to play, and she's also aware of other people who have other roles Mm -hmm. and is kind of like trying to piece it all together to an extent. Yeah, to figure out Agnes's prophecies and to be able to um, be there and to possibly stop the apocalypse if she can. Um, But she heads to Tadfield, which is where Adam lives because she knows that that will be where it goes down. And then she's basically trying to figure out who the Antichrist is and where he is in Tadfield. And all the kids are aware of her moving into this cottage. They're like, oh, there's a witch here. Yeah. So she's kind of, she becomes, you know, involved with, you know, meeting Adam Mm -hmm. at some point and like becoming acquainted with him. Yeah. But she doesn't know that he's the Antichrist. And Crowley mentions this in both the book and the show. He kind of says like, he's, he'll be impossible to locate because he is like naturally has like a defense mechanism that keeps people from suspecting anything. Exactly. We also get a scene where Anathema is out late one night trying to 
like specifically pinpoint where the Antichrist is. Yeah. When she runs into Crowley and Aziraphale, who or are or more in the accurately, area. Crowley runs into her. <laughs> <laughs> no, they kind of run into each other. Accurately, I guess. she okay. hits the car. That's true. Is at least her bike. Crowley's argument. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they run into each other, and then. Her bike is damaged, so they give her a ride. And Aziraphale ends up, like, healing the bike. <laughs> like, overly healing it. And she's so. like, did th- my bike have gears before and a basket? Like, what? <laughs> and Crowley's, like, giving him the side eye. That scene was really funny. But essentially, she accidentally leaves her book of prophecies in the car with them, mm-hmm. which Aziraphale finds later and realizes what it is and begins reading it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Let's also talk about... Newt, Shadwell, and Madam Tracy. Yes. Oh, Newt. He's just dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Newt's just kind of a poor, lost soul. Yeah. Trying to make his way in the world. It starts off with him trying to be like a computer engineer. He loves computers. Yeah. He just sucks at them. But they don't like him. Yeah. And he can't make them work. Mm-hmm. And it's a funny joke and setup at the beginning of the story. And then it is... Not talked about for an extended period oh, in, the, yeah. in the story until at the very end when, when it becomes relevant again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but essentially, he decides, he sees an ad in the paper mm-hmm. after his career plans aren't panning out too well. Mm-hmm. And he decides to answer it and become a witch finder. Yes. Uh, this is where he meets... Sergeant Shadwell, who is in the Witchfinder army. And this army can date back to actually Pulsifer's great, 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 great grandfather, thou shalt not commit adultery. Pulsifer. <laughs> yes. And they've been in existence ever since then in decreasing numbers. Um, Shadwell seems to be the last of them. And now there's Newt. And their activities are cutting out articles in newspapers that seem suspicious. <laughs> And having pins in case they need to poke a witch with a pin. Exactly. And we find out later, and I really love this aspect, that like Shadwell has been kind of like uh, making up like the rankings of the army because he's literally the only one left. Yeah. So he's like, oh, yeah. And the lieutenant is, you know, Mm -hmm. sergeant whatever. And the, the person, you know, he's just like created this whole falsified like structure to the army yeah and that like fools other people into thinking that it's this actual still great like mm-hmm. relevant system and, and he's it, actually employed by both Aziraphale and Crowley yes each without the other's knowledge because each of them is like oh a witch finder and like spies to like do my evil or good out in the world Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and like they all think that he's like just a member of this huge organization, but it's, it's just, just him. It's just him. <laughs> Shadwell's probably one of the more like next to Aziraphale and Crowley. He's probably yeah. one of the most iconic characters in the story. Mm-hmm. He's just so memorable and quirky and like weird. Yeah. And I really like him. I think he's a really funny character. Yeah. He's your pretty typical like crotchety old man. Yeah. Also like super bigoted and like. Obviously, anti-witch, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I love at one point, uh, Newt is talking about how he really likes Shadwell and how a lot of people do. And yeah. despite, like, he's really bigoted and, like, racist and everything, but, like, he's 
equally bigoted and racist towards like literally everyone yeah because he just hates people yeah but also like he does have like a fondness for people yeah he, he does have a little bit of like a good heart deep down <laughs> yeah well yeah he he especially grows to like newt which i yeah. really liked he kind of feels like a protection over newt and like mm-hmm. you know respects him as a fellow witch finder so he he does have a lot of good characteristics as well yes but like it's kind of his like other ones that are like weirdly endearing mm-hmm. which is kind of funny but yeah and madam tracy is shadwell's next door neighbor <laughs> and she is an occultist or uh Kind of like a medium. Yeah. She has like seances in her house and she also is a dominatrix on the side. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. She's just kind of like. She's like a woman in her like 50s or 60s just living her dream. Of many trades. Yeah. (laughs) She she dabbles in many occupations. Many of the arts. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, she's just such a funny and like. She also likes Shadwell, like leaves him food. And yeah. despite him like constantly calling her a, a Jezebel and a whore and like all these terrible things, she's just like, oh, you. Yeah. And like, and he just like, I don't know. It's like not good. It's like not healthy or good, but like it's still kind of like endearing and funny in its own way. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So those three characters kind of like find each other and are mm-hmm. like uh, together and eventually Aziraphale and Crowley in their attempt to find the real Antichrist as part of their efforts, like you said, they contact uh, Shadwell and tell him to go to this specific town mm-hmm. of Tadfield. Ta- Tadfield, thank you. I always forget it. <laughs> of Tadfield, because they know that's where the Antichrist is. Mm-hmm. And so Shadwell gives Newt his first real assignment to get out of and a pin and a pin and thumb screws <laughs> and matches and matches <laughs> <laughs> and all the other things a good witch finder needs yes and sends him off to this town mm-hmm. meanwhile curly and aziraphale are doing everything they can in their own respective ways to hunt down the antichrist yeah aziraphale has his uh, has the Agnes Nutter prophecies that he's reading yeah. and like making connections. And that's how he finds out like the child's in Tadfield. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he kind of runs into a bit of a problem. Yes. Uh, he is summoned to join the forces of heaven because they're getting ready for war. Exactly. And he's like, uh, just give me like a few minutes. I have some stuff to do to wrap up. <laughs> and they're like, uh, well, you need to get here soon. There's like a summoning circle. And then Shadwell shows up and thinks that Aziraphale is, like, possessed or something, or is a witch or whatever. Yeah, because there's circles on the floor and chalk and candles. So he tries to, like, exercise him and ends up, like, walking Aziraphale back into the summoning circle. So Aziraphale is summoned up to heaven. His body is just discorporated. Just, yeah. And it's gone. And we get a great... (laughs) Oh, fuck. Because <laughs> Aziraphale has never sworn no. like his entire life on Earth and then just decides to drop a big F-bomb <laughs> when he realizes that he's about to be disincorporated yes. uh, in the summoning circle. And this also begins one of my favorite ongoing jokes where Shadwell, of course, is convinced that he actually uh, exercised him. him yeah. And he like looks at his finger 
that he was like pointing at Aziraphale with. And now he like believes that he his hand is like the ultimate weapon (laughs) to like exercise any demon. That's great. And he like constantly is referring to like his the weapon of his hand. Like (laughs) and he's just insane. He's just an insane old man and so funny. (laughs) Poor Aziraphale keeps trying to convince the forces of heaven that they don't want to go to war. And this is really focused a lot more on in the show. Yeah, which I I enjoy. Yeah. um, In the book, he does try to convince them, but it's only like one time. I think there's like three or four times in the show where he has these conversations with heaven, with angels. And he's basically like, hey, like, I know where the Antichrist is. We should like stop this from happening or like we can still not do it. Like, I don't know why we want to destroy the whole earth and all these people. Yeah. The show uh, does a good job of expanding on this by one giving us kind of a location for heaven and hell. Yeah. They're both like the same building. Uh, Heaven is just on the top floor and hell is on the bottom floor. In the dank, dark basement. (laughs) (laughs) Because we get scenes in both locations. Yeah. Uh, It also introduces the entirely new character of Gabriel, Mm -hmm. played by the lovable John Hamm. Oh my God. I love this role. He's so good in this part. He's so good. He's just like, uh, just. One of those people that, thinks that he's right and just refuses to admit like any other anyone else's perspective is like not acceptable yeah and he's also kind of dumb yeah but like <laughs> like i love at one point he's like uh we can't win the war if there's no war <laughs> uh yeah but john ham is just he has some of the best lines in mm-hmm. the show i think but he's top notch but yeah just kind of this uh really bringing home the idea that Heaven is just as on board with the Antichrist in this war as yeah. hell is. Mm-hmm. And like everyone wants this to They're happen. They're caught up in this idea that we have to like battle it all out and like fight for dominance and like world be damned, you know, humanity be damned. Like who cares? It's all about who's going to win. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, which I think is like one of the, you know, something the book also just heavily establishes is that like, Good and bad are just clearly two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Like, as many terrible atrocities are committed in the name of good. Yes. As things that we attribute to being evil. Yes. And that really they're just two kind of, like, forces that are just, like, not even canceling each other out. They're just almost, like, two sides of the same coin. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's a lot of commentary, too, on humanity's role as well because Crowley is always talking about how you know hell is being like oh congratulations on the Spanish Inquisition or on the um, Paris revolutions the French Revolution and Crowley's like I didn't do these things yeah. you know I didn't like tempt humans into doing these things they came up with it themselves like <laughs> humans are bad enough they don't need like demons to influence them but also humans can be incredibly good as well like there's good and evil in humans and like what's the point in the angels and the demons like fighting about it like yeah (laughs) exactly yeah it's just all it's worthless it's all pointless it's all worthless like Aziraphale and Crowley's agreement that like hey we're both just like canceling each other out yeah it's all neutral yeah essentially so uh, it's all just a big pissing contest. Yeah. So Aziraphale gets summoned. He's yes. gone from Earth now. His body's discorporated. And Crowley is being uh, summoned by hell. Mm-hmm. Um, because 
they take the they take who they think is the Antichrist to Megiddo because that's where Armageddon is supposed to begin. And they quickly realize that this is not the real Antichrist. <laughs> and of course, Crowley has to pay. Yeah. So they show up to his apartment, to mm-hmm. his like luxury, nice, modern apartment. Yeah. Where he has set up uh, the classic trap of a bucket on a open door, uh, except the bucket is full of holy water. So yeah. the first demon that walks in just melts in this like horrendous, like disgusting, like. Oh, yeah. Like it, it's so well done in the show. And we're meant to believe that he's really dead. Like. Like and he's Crowley totally and gone. Aziraphale, their bodies can be discorporated or killed, but their spirits live on. They can get new bodies. But like this guy is gone. He is long gone. <laughs> uh, and so then Crowley tries bluffing his way out because Haster, the other demon, is kind of untouched. Yeah. And there's kind of a whole like standoff. And eventually Crowley manages to trick him long enough to jump into the phone lines. <laughs> yeah. So essentially Crowley traps uh, Haster in his answering machine yeah. <laughs> in this wacky chase scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to say here that even though some of the jokes in the show aren't as good as they are in the book, yeah. some of them are better. I agree. Because <laughs> there's this one part where we get this whole explanation of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin Yeah, and how none because no angels dance except for a zero fail. And so it's kind of this whole long winded joke. Yeah. But in the show, <laughs> they intercut that voiceover from the narrator with like old time footage of a zero fail dancing, whatever it is. The gavotte. The gavotte. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like a dance from like the late 1800s. <laughs> It is. It's so funny. The footage he of him. He looks so happy. <laughs> he's just so ecstatic as he's doing this jig. Yeah. Like the entire time the narrator is explaining this whole like idea, this whole concept. And yeah. it is a riot. I laughed harder at that than I think any other part in the show. Yeah. And I mean, Michael Sheen totally sells it. It's he him. owns. You know, I think that... Uh, Crowley easily could have been the one to shine the brightest oh, yeah. out of these two. But honestly, Michael Sheen, I think, elevates Aziraphale so much. That he I, does. I think I like him even better than Crowley. It's hard to to pick for me. And I think it's really easy to be like, oh, the like sarcastic bad boy, like slightly brooding demon is like the cool one, the yeah. best one and the funniest one. But then you have like kind of like an understated performance like Sheen's. Where it's just like awkward, but like funny. And mm-hmm. he just plays Aziraphale so well. That I, oh, he I does. It. That like meek reluctance to do anything that's bad. But yeah, but like still like this steel underneath. And mm-hmm. like, oh, I love it. And he likes, he kind of likes being convinced by Crowley to do yeah. things. Like, there's just so many layers to it that I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so after Crowley traps Haster, he goes to the bookshop to find Aziraphale, only yeah. to discover that once Aziraphale had been discorporated, one of the candles fell over and lit the whole shop on fire. Yeah. And Aziraphale uh, obviously is gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crowley can't find him anywhere. All yeah. he finds inside are the Book of Prophecies. Yeah. And so he thinks, I think it's cleared a little bit more in the show that like he thinks Aziraphale's dead. Yeah. Like he thinks that like, 
maybe the like heaven killed him or something. He's not sure. Yeah. But he's really like angry and driven by this. Yeah. And I love that. I do too. He's, he's like my best friend. He's so upset. He calls him his best friend. He does. Yeah. I love their relationship so much. I know. It's, it's so great. great. Yeah. Uh, so he just kind of decides like he looks in the book of prophecies. He sees where Tadfield is and that's where the Antichrist is. Mm-hmm. So he takes off for there. Yeah. Meanwhile. Meanwhile, Aziraphale <laughs> is like, uh, I need a body because I still need to stop this from happening. So he kind of like uses, he, he like pops in to people's consciousnesses to try to like find someone to like host him for a bit to try to convince to go and try to stop the apocalypse. This brings me just to like something I want to talk about in the book. And sure. like, I love this book, mm-hmm. but there are problems. There are. There um, definitely are. One problem is not once, but twice using the F word. And I don't mean fuck. Yeah. I mean the homosexual slur uh, in the book. And the second time was really yeah rough. Yeah. Like it was a dark joke i'm using air quotes around joke yeah like not tasteful remind me what the second one was um so i'm just gonna say the word but um newt is telling a soldier that Mm. like like he has his business card that says i need all your faggots oh yeah and i think the card is clearly saying like it's, to it's burn. referring it's to wood. referring literally to word, but the wood. But the soldier thinks he's obviously talking about gay people and like yeah. is likes that proving of it. Yeah, he yeah. like is like, oh, cool. Like you guys are. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. It, it was not good. Yeah, and there's also um like a casual racism and cultural appropriation that was like really problematic in some ways. This scene in particular is why I'm bringing it up because. Aziraphale is kind of going into like spiritual people, which is why he ends up possessing mm-hmm. Madame Tracy because she's opening herself to the occult. But we get a scene of like someone in the Australian outback and it's very like Native American, obviously not Native American, it'd be Aboriginal in, in Australia, yeah. but very like um, stereotypical like medicine man going out to the desert. Like mm-hmm. that was kind of ridiculous. Um, There's another... Uh, man in Haiti, I think, practicing oh, like yeah, voodoo, voodoo, trying to create a zombie or something. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of very like the most cliche uh, regional cultural, cultural things you could think of. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of different times. Not very. A lot of this is really condensed at this point, too, because yeah. I also remember uh, the people Madame Tracy was doing a seance oh, for yeah. like just describes the woman as being like fat and stupid yeah just kind of like yeah very it was just very like out of the blue like mean and awful and like small minded which is really surprising because this book has so many like great ideas and larger themes that are so important but just to be like it, it just it made me a little bit sad and i think i'm a little bit more aware of it this time around because we make it a point to like discuss these things and talk about that stuff and luckily you know none of this is translated in the show i think for good reason yeah i think neil game was a lot more conscientious probably Mm -hmm. you know now to like you know edit certain things out and like uh even the more subtle things that aren't as tasteful like were like removed so the show does a much better job of that. And I'm not saying that this completely ruined the book for no, me because I no. still loved it. But I did just want to mention it because I thought it was. That stuff's worth bringing up because like 
I don't know, people jump the gun and are like, oh, so you're saying like you shouldn't read this book. And it's like, no, of course not. Mm-hmm. But like we can't get better about these things if we don't talk about if it. we don't talk and acknowledge about them in not just the bad work, but the good work that's out there as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just one of the few shortcomings of the book that's kind of like, you know, a little disappointing. Uh, so then we have uh, Aziraphale. Oh, and I also have to mention the scene in the show, the possession scene. Oh, yeah. It's a little over the top. It was way too much. This yeah. was the scene I referred to where I was like, if I didn't read the book, I'd have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Because like Aziraphale shows up in Madam Tracy, but then he hands off like the phone, so to speak, <laughs> to the woman's actual husband who's there for the seance for the seance and it's funny in the book yeah because you kind of are following what's going on but in the show it like happens so rapidly and it's so over the top and drawn out that i was like this is really tonally off like it is not i don't know it wasn't the time for that kind of a joke and it wasn't handled well Mm -mm. and uh yeah just not very good no Quality-wise, even, I'd say episode five of this show, I don't know why. Yeah, I didn't like it as much either. It was like, every episode was so good. Mm-hmm. And then episode five was just like kind of a dud. Yeah, and we kept going back, and we'll talk about this. It, I guess we can talk about it now. We kept going back to scenes of Adam coming into his powers. Yeah. And I didn't like any of these scenes because it was just the same scene over and over, which was him sitting there with his friends and being like, I will rule the world. And then his eyes would get red. Yeah. And then his friends would be like, we don't want you to. And then he'd be like, now you can't talk. He's like, and like, shut up. And then it, other stuff would happen and they would go back to it and it would be the same thing. He would be saying the same thing. It, like, yeah, nothing changed. And honestly, like Adam's arc uh in this story is I, I have the same problem with the book in that like some of his motivations just aren't there. Yeah. Like I kind of get what they're going for in a way, like with like the environmental aspect yeah. of him like, oh, we're screwing up the earth and everything. So and, we may as well destroy it and start over. Yeah, but a lot of that isn't really very well supported in the story. And mm-hmm. same with his like like megalomaniac like I'm gonna rule the world kind of like attitude and then switching that like I don't know you can always argue oh it's the antichrist in him but it feels like it's supposed to be character driven and it just doesn't feel justified enough Mm -hmm. I think his reasoning to eventually not do Armageddon makes sense and I like that yeah Um, yeah I do too his rationalizing his rationalizing but like him being crazy and trying to like rule the world is like less. Yeah, I less I agree. interesting. And we don't really get that justification as much in the show. No, it's kind of more just like, oh, no, I'm in control again and we have to stop this. Yeah. And before he kind of goes crazy, just a bunch of weird stuff starts happening around the world. Yeah. That is like basically whatever he wants to happen, he can like start to make it happen now. Mm-hmm. Um, And so we get like aliens and tibetans who are digging holes in the earth and the kraken from the deep and like all these other things because essentially anathema (laughs) uh gave him a lot of books that are just or magazines that kind of have a lot of like conspiracy theory things and so like he's thinking of them now 
and unconsciously creating them in real life in the world, like Atlantis and yeah. aliens mm-hmm. and uh, just a number of wacky situations that we... This is where a lot of the CGI of the show is. Oh, yeah. That's so impressive. Mm-hmm. But, a lot of funny scenes, a lot of funny parts. Not yeah. super important to the plot. No, no. <laughs> but they're just it's kind of just like building up the craziness of like the, the end. Yeah, the upcoming apocalypse, essentially. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, uh, Newt, the witch finder, finds a witch, <laughs> Anathema, but she's waiting for him. Yes. Because he's supposed to come, according to Agnes. And then there's a crazy storm and they bang. They totally bang <laughs> because uh, Agnes knew it. Agnes knew it and she totally was a great wingman for yeah. both of them and is like, <laughs> yeah, you Get two it. do it. And Newt is like, uh, yeah, I'm totally a virgin. <laughs> <laughs> the joke and scene of this, though, in the episode was really well done with them, like, under the bed and, yeah. like, sliding out from under the During bed. During the storm. Yeah. I like in the book and in the show when, after they've had sex, Newt is like, we can we can do it again. I think I'd be fine with us doing it again. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I would, if you I would, would. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then uh, Anathema is like, well, Agnes doesn't say we do it a second time. So and he's like, oh, no. <laughs> he's like, is this what my life will be like? <laughs> <laughs> Agnes, <laughs> Nutter, like determining every time I have sex. But then they, they realize that they need to head to the airbase. Yeah. Um, Because that's where everything's going to go down. So they they head there. And as they're heading there, um, Adam is having this moment where he's evil. He's evil. He's like red eyed. All this is happening. And then he finally he has this moment where his humanity kind of comes back and his his friends kind of help him get there. Yeah. Yeah. It's it kind of just like clicks back in place for him. Mm -hmm. I liked I liked him comparing like the armies of heaven and hell to like their gang and the greasy Johnson gang in the book. Yeah, no, that was really in in the book. He has this whole thing where he's like, if we could choose to get rid of the greasy Johnson gang, would we? And they were kind of like, life would be less interesting. Yeah. If they were gone. And then they're like, if we didn't have someone to like fight to like kind of oppose us, would we just turn on each other? Yeah. And how, like, it's not really about, like, whose gang is better. It's just kind of, like, the world is better with all of us in it, you know? Exactly. And, like, it doesn't really, wouldn't make sense for one of them to win. Mm-hmm. So I, I loved that logic and the hint that Greasy Johnson might have been the extra baby was just icing on the cake. <laughs> the extra baby? Yeah, from the baby switch. Oh, my God. I just got that joke now. I just really? understood. I <laughs> about was like- the tropical fish? Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. See, the, the book is just so it's dense. It's dense. It's so dense. It is dense. You could read it over and over. References. That's like the third joke that you've cl- clued me in on. Like that and the Elvis one. I oh, was like, yeah. Oh, that guy was Elvis. Like, oh, my God. It's a very... If you read this book, like, there's plenty that you'll be picking up on and laughing at. Yeah. But there is a whole level of like humor and jokes in this story. I'm sure we could reread it and find out more. I'm sure you can just tell me a lot more (laughs) (laughs) that I have no idea about. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So they decide, okay, well, we don't want Greasy Johnson to be gone. And we think the world should be as it is. So we have to stop the apocalypse. Yeah. And also... 
Aziraphale and Madame Tracy's body convinces Shadwell that they should also go yeah. to the airbase to mm-hmm. like figure everything out. Because uh, Aziraphale basically wants to kill the Antichrist. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then Crowley is trying to get there. He has to drive his car through the ring of fire that is the M25. <laughs> I don't know anything about London roads, but it seems like a London joke. <laughs> oh, yeah. This was very effective, though, to see in the show. Yeah. Because I wasn't quite picturing it being like a literal ring of fire around London. Yeah. And but yeah, uh, there's also a little thing that the show adds that makes sense where. In both the show and the book, Haster escapes from the answering machine. Yes. But then in the book, he doesn't show up again, does he? No. He just, yeah, I thought that was super weird. I think weird. he goes back to hell. I guess. Yeah, but like, to join the rest of we them. We get a whole scene of him escaping and then it adds up to nothing. Yeah. In the show, though, he gets into Crowley's car with him. Mm-hmm. And Crowley decides to just drive straight through the ring of fire with him in the car. Yeah. And it ends up killing Has- Haster. His body. His yeah. body. Uh, but Crowley, because of his imagination, which I really loved this explanation. Yeah. He's able to imagine that everything is fine and that his car is fine and nothing's wrong. Yeah. And so that like keeps him alive. And he drives his burning inferno of a car all the way to the Tatfield <laughs> Air Base. <laughs> exactly. It's amazing. So finally, everyone culminates at the airbase. Yes. And the four horsemen of the, the apocalypse, mm-hmm. which are war, uh, famine, Death, and then instead of pestilence, it's pollution, which I think is relevant to our times what now. Was pesti- what does that mean, pestilence? Uh, like disease. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um. So the four horsemen are already there. They have, like, messed with the communications hub in the airbase to basically trigger every, like, nuclear missile and, like, launch code and everything all over the world to start the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And they begin to leave, or I guess death senses that Adam is there. Yeah. So the four horsemen come out and confront Adam and his three friends. Mm-hmm. And Adam has kind of like figured out a plan in both versions. It's more complicated in the book. Yeah. Where each horseman has like an item that is important and they create like a other version of the item and it's a whole thing. Yeah. In the movie, or in the show, essentially, they just steal War's sword from her. Yeah. And then they use that to kill three of the four horsemen. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Death is like, I'm too fucking cool and important to die, <laughs> but I'll just leave. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the four horsemen are gone. And then Anathema and Newt get into the airbase. And this is where the Newt backstory thing comes back into play. Yeah. Where he's like, oh, I'm actually not good at computers. I lied to you. I'm terrible at computers. And Anathema's like, oh, if you're terrible at computers, you should try to fix this apocalypse. (laughs) She's like, I know. I'll use reverse psychology. And Newt's like, um, no, if I fix it, like, it'll just blow up faster. And she's like, well, how could you make it better? Like, and then he tries to fix it and immediately, like, everything stops. So he does fix it, just like not in the way yeah. that he intended because he's bad with the computers. I thought the joke in that worked much better in the show. Yeah. Like the logic of it and him being like, well, I could make it go faster <laughs> uh, was really well done. So that part of the apocalypse is done. The four horsemen aren't there. Now everyone's gathered and they're like, OK, well, the apocalypse isn't happening. Meanwhile, Adam has separated Aziraphale from Madame Tracy's body, so we don't have to see them 
Yes. In the same body <laughs> we're, we're anymore. We're done with that whole shtick. <laughs> uh, Crowley has a great line, though, where everyone's like, oh, everything's been saved. Everything's been averted. Yeah. But Crowley's like, no, it hasn't. He's like, they want heaven their and war. hell, they want their war. He's like, and this was just the excuse. Exactly. He's like, they're still going to do it or figure out any way that they still can do it. Mm-hmm. He's like, as long as they want to, it's going to happen, basically. Sure enough, a representative of heaven and hell show up to this gathering. Um, in the book, it is Beelzebub from hell and the Metatron, which is the <laughs> voice of God from heaven. In the in the show, they have Gabriel, the angel, played by John Hamm, come down instead of the Metatron. <laughs> Charming John Hamm. Yes. Uh, yeah, and this is a great scene in both versions. I think even better in the book, just because there's more dialogue and more discussion. But I just really love Adam's rationalizing yeah and his way of like seeing everything Mm -hmm. because of course they're all like you're the antichrist you have to start this like what are you doing yeah they're like you can rule the world when it's all done and he's like i don't want to rule the world he's like that's like so much work he's like i don't want to do any of that yeah he's like i have enough trouble trying to like think of stuff to keep me and my friends busy like i don't want to be in charge like people just want you to solve their problems and like that's not cool And he applies similar logic later when people are like, you can use your power for good. Yeah. Like, they're like, you can bring all the whales back. And he's like, why? People will just kill them again. He's like, that's not going to stop people from killing them. Yeah. It's like, fuck, he's he's right. He is right. Yeah. (laughs) He's exactly right. And uh, I love to hear Aziraphale and Crowley kind of step in as well because, you know, Gabriel slash Metatron and Beelzebub are like, it's in the plan, like the great plan. We have to have the war. And Aziraphale is like... Is it the ineffable plan, though? And there have been references throughout the show and the book to the ineffable, <laughs> ineffable, <laughs> ineffable plan, which ineffable means unknowable. So God's unknowable plan. And so they're basically implying like, oh, there's the great plan, which is the war and Armageddon. But is it the ineffable plan of God, which no one knows? Mm -hmm. So how do you know that you're not following the ineffable plan by (laughs) not doing the great plan? (laughs) They just like do all this. Outlogic them. And I love, they're just like, oh, we, we have to talk to someone. I need to take this upstairs. We should, we should go. (laughs) Like they both like depart to like converse or consult with their higher ups, essentially. So, Mm Yeah, that whole um, <laughs> logic. And I, I love it, too, because it's like the whole logic of like Christianity, especially in general. Yeah. Of like you look at terrible things and you're like, oh, oh it's, it's God's plan. It's God's plan. Yeah. And no one can know God's plan. God's ways are not our ways to justify like literally anything that yeah. you can't explain. Like if it happens, yeah. it's God's plan. Yeah. So like... If you you can just choose not to do this and it would still be God's plan. Yeah. You know, so mm-hmm. it, it is a really funny nod to that part of Christianity. Yeah, for sure. And mm-hmm. I really enjoy it. So once again, they've like outsmarted everyone. Everything seems good. Mm-hmm. And then the earth tremors begin. Yes. Because and they're like, Adam, it's your dad. It's your real dad. <laughs> the horned one. And essentially Satan himself is arriving to spank Adam. (laughs) (laughs) 
in right? The, in the show, we get like a crazy CGI Satan yeah. that pops out of the earth. I mean, pretty tastefully done. I mean, it's a little out there, but like... It's really well... Not like, bad. Once again, the CGI <laughs> is super effective. Yeah. And we also get... So this doesn't happen in the book. In the book, Adam just like... Is like, oh, my dad's coming. And then it's like his human dad. Yeah, because he, he can control reality. So yeah. he basically can like just make it not happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of a little anticlimactic. Mm-hmm. It doesn't read that way really in the book. Like I'm fine with how it works out. But in the show, I can see why they're like, we need a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, and we also get a scene where Crowley and Aziraphale kind of like have this moment with Adam mm-hmm. where they tell him like, you have this power, you can use it. And they kind of like encourage him uh, to make this choice. Yeah. And I did like that little and to moment. lean into his humanity. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, he's not pure good. He's not pure evil. He's human. And that's great. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that scene. Yeah. Because it's kind of weird. Cause like by this point in the story, everyone has converged. Yeah. And is together yet. They don't have like moments together. No, they have like no scene or dialogue moments together really mm-hmm. other than in the groups they already existed in. Yeah. So I did like this. We get a little bit of Adam Crowley and Aziraphale. Yeah, it was cute. But I will say, though, the speech he gives his Satan father mm-hmm. was a little. Yeah, he's like, you were never there for me. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but also your human dad doesn't seem like he was there for you a lot. <laughs> I mean, he seems nice. <laughs> he, so... seems, he seems perfectly nice. <laughs> but like, there's no buildup of him in the show. Like, we get like. Do we get any scenes of him and his dad together? Not really. No. Yeah. So it's like at t- for Adam to be like, you're not my real dad. I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, but also your real dad doesn't feel like your real dad. Yeah. So <laughs> I guess it was just him trying to like he's willing with his brain for this not to be his dad, his actual his dad. Yeah. And so I think it was more of it wasn't so much about his human dad, but just like him changing, changing the world. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I get it in that way, but it was a little bit of a mixed kind of message yeah especially because his human dad then immediately arrives on the scene yeah um so yeah and then it's pretty much all over and like when he has his human dad show up and you know gets rid of satan he also kind of like reboots the world yeah slash like fixes all the crazy shit that had happened mm-hmm. and so like everyone goes back t- to normal aziraphale's shop is no longer burned down and uh, Crowley's car is fixed. Like all the people that died in the last few hours are back to life. Um, And things are slightly different, but like mostly the same. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We get an extended part totally new to the story following this Mm -hmm. where Aziraphale and Crowley are each kind of like taken. Kidnapped. Kidnapped in in broad daylight. And taken to their respective uh, heaven and hells where to await trial. Yes. Where they're being tried mm-hmm. for basically turning on. They're their like, side. you fucked up our plans. <laughs> <laughs> and they are uh, found guilty mm-hmm. and they're each committed to die. Crowley via holy water mm-hmm. and Aziraphale by like, hellfire. hellfire, I'm yeah. guessing. So there's this whole buildup of them. Getting ready to enter these elements, mm-hmm. essentially. And then 
we quickly see cut to Crowley is totally fine. He's laying splashing in, the water. in a bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> and I love he's like flicking water at everyone and like And they're all like, oh <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's shocked. And of course Xerophil is also fine in the Hellfire. He's yeah. like totally unfazed. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of like what's going on. And the obvious first assumption is like oh, maybe they each kind of, like, are a little more in the middle now. Yeah, they're not, like, pure good or pure evil. So, like, they're fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but essentially, after this shocking moment for either side, they're like, okay, maybe we won't kill you because this is, like, weird. Yeah, and Crowley's like, how about you leave me the fuck alone or you'll yeah. regret it. <laughs> and Aziraphale <laughs> also kind of scares yeah. Gabriel and everyone. Mm-hmm. And then we get a scene of them meeting again in the park where it is revealed that they had actually swapped places yes. with each other. Yeah. Which is a great reveal I and loved just a great it. moment. Yeah. And it was kind of like a prophecy that they had seen in the book. And so they knew that it would happen. But I just love that moment when they switch back and they're like, oh, we we like pretended to be each other and we got one <laughs> over on them. And it was just like, I loved it. I it, loved it. It, it, and was it was such a funny moment. It was exciting to have a moment that we didn't know what would happen. Yeah. Because yeah. like, oh, this isn't in the book. Like, oh, what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really I really enjoyed that part a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we just get this great scene of them ending out their story, getting dinner together. Yeah, at the Ritz. At the Ritz. Yeah. Together forever. They're so great. And you said something that was really, I thought, good and insightful about their relationship. Yeah, a lot of people... Um, ever since the book was written, but I think even more with the show have been like, they are a queer couple. Like, yeah, they're, you know, they're gay for each other. And I feel like at least with the tone of the book and the show, I feel like they are, are, are a couple. They're in like a romantic pairing, but they might be like asexual. Yeah. So they have like a romantic relationship, a partnership, a deep friendship, but they don't feel sexual towards each other. No. They feel like tender and like kind to each other in a romantic way, but not really like super sexualized. At least that's not how I read it. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. And I think the way that's played out in the show is very effective, like especially with them at the end. Yeah. And like they wanted to when they didn't think they could avert the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And this was also added in the show. They wanted to run. Crowley wanted to run away together. Yeah. He's like, let's just get out of here. Yeah. You know, let's go to another planet and Mm -hmm. like just like avoid everyone yeah uh so So they really do play that up more in the show and i really like that because i mean the two leads have such chemistry and it is so amazing to see but i loved that in the show they focus more on the two of them you know all that backstory and the history all these extra moments between them really making it clear the fondness and friendship and love that they have for each other yeah they're just such a great pairing and and like you said i loved the affection they had for each other and even though it wasn't like ever really a sexual kind of thing or at least portrayed that way i do love that it still felt romantic so uh that's our headcanon anyway yeah (laughs) (laughs) they are asexual but romantic partners yes (laughs) uh so that's where their story leaves off Mm -hmm. uh we get a moment with newt and Anathema. Anathema. I keep pausing on her name. (laughs) Anathema. They get uh, further prophecies of Agnes Nutter delivered to them, but then they ultimately decide to burn it because they don't want to live their lives always 
waiting for the next prophecy to happen. Yeah, which, which is I, really good. I like. yeah. yeah, it's a good conclusion, especially to Anathema's story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Shadwell and Madame Tracy hook up. They they totally hook up. Yes. After Shadwell asks how many nipples Madame Tracy has <laughs> to make sure she's not a true witch, I guess. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, everyone gets an and Adam and Adam. He, he gets grounded, yes. but he uh, takes his dog out into the yard mm-hmm. and is able to use his powers to will him to escape. So he still has some powers, I guess? Yeah, yeah. It seems like he's... But he seems like he's having a good time with his dog. His cute dog. His cute dog. (laughs) Yeah, so we just kind of get a great little uh, ending for everyone. Yeah. It's very satisfactory. Mm Mm-hmm. But now it's the question, Adina. Which one... Why would you ask me that? Which one, Adina? Why would you ask me? Is better. You know... In some ways, I feel like the show is better, but in other ways, the book is better. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Sounds very uh, (laughs) convenient and like you're trying to get out of this decision. I like both of them. I really like both of them. Mm -hmm. They're both enjoy like really enjoyable experiences. Like if you haven't read this book, you really do need to read it. It's so funny. The narration is just hilarious. Yeah. Like there's footnotes, the whole bit. It's amazing. Um, the show though is so enjoyable to watch. The actors are amazing. The production is excellent. Mm hmm. Uh, I don't know. I know my answer. Then just say it. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'm going to say the book. Okay. Uh, I'm saying the book because I too loved this show. It was so well done. And the book isn't perfect. No. But the humor of the book is just, this is the funniest book I've ever read by far, I think. Like, just the humor of it is just so well executed, so good. Mm -hmm. And I think for the most part, a lot of that translates well to the show. Yeah. But not all of it. And the show does do some things better than the book. Yeah. But I think ultimately the book is a little bit more maybe consistent or solid on that footing and the other aspect is i think i think the show is like the perfect pairing with this book yeah like if you like this book and you're familiar with this book this you show will most likely love is show. gonna be great you're yeah. gonna love it i can't help but think of watching this show from the perspective of someone not familiar with the source material mm. and i can't imagine it being a little convoluted a little confusing like, you're not picking up on everything. Yeah. It's hard to say, not, you know, since I am familiar with the book, but just the way it's executed, I don't think it's going to be as effectively entertaining for someone. I still think you would. It's li- hard to put yourself in that perspective. It is. Uh, and I still think you would like the show if you haven't read the book. Yeah. But I think ultimately the best experience is if you are familiar with the book. I agree. That's a good point. So I guess I guess I'll agree with you. Thank you for helping me make this choice. <laughs> I thought I'd I thought I'd get you yes. there. Yes. Um I guess I I will also go with the book. The the writing is so spot on and I just love this partnership between Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Yeah. And I've loved hearing them the two of them talk about how they wrote this and how they would talk on the phone and send like floppy disks back and forth through the mail and all this yeah. stuff like when they were writing it. And there's this funny part that is in like one of the interviews 
uh, in the back of one of our editions of the book where Neil Gaiman or Terry Pratchett, I forget who was talking about, like they get asked the question, like who wrote which part and like all that stuff and how it just blended together for them. And that at one point they were looking back over the book and they, one of them was like, Oh, that was like a funny part you wrote. And the other one was like, Oh, I didn't write that. And they like <laughs> couldn't figure out who wrote it. And they were like, I think the book just like partially wrote itself. Yeah. <laughs> like they were such a good pairing and worked yeah. so well together. That it was just like meant to be. Yeah. And I mean, I can't even imagine what goes into two authors writing the same book. Yeah. Like that. I don't even know what that process would look like, mm -hmm. but it's amazing that it came out the way it did so consistently funny and yeah. well done and just executed that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, it, it's a classic and I'd recommend it to anyone. Super funny, super unique. Yeah. And if you've already read it, you should reread it. It's a good time. Oh yeah. Maybe you too will catch a thousand new jokes that you didn't catch <laughs> on the first read yeah. like I am. <laughs> All right, book. Book for both of us. Let's do lightning round. Lightning. Okay, so first up for lightning round, we would be so sad if we did not mention the important role that the band Queen has to play in both <laughs> the book and the TV show. Yes. Uh, one of the first jokes in the beginning of the book is about how and this is in this was written in 1990, so they're talking about cassette tapes. But the joke is that any cassette tape that's left in a car for more than two weeks immediately turns into a Queen album. Yeah, a <laughs> like, best of Queen. No matter what it is, and that's just like so funny and perfect. And Crowley <laughs> is continuously trying to put like other music into his car, and it's just Queen. Yeah. <laughs> what, what was it like? They were trying to listen to like Beethoven's yeah. Fat Bottomed All, Girls, yeah. like. <laughs> They kept like rephrasing the joke in like a different, different way. way that was so funny. Yeah. And then, of course, the show uses this really effectively as well. And there's a great scene where Crowley is driving his burning car up to the airbase to what was it? Uh, we Will Rock You. I or Another One Bites the Dust. I forget which song it was. Yeah, it was just amazing. Uh, yeah, I was so happy that they had actual Queen music. Because I was like, this could easily be something that they don't use because maybe the cost would be too high. Yeah, but I did, it's so worth it. I did notice in the credits, though, there's a special thanks to Queen. Oh, nice. So maybe they just let them use the music, like, royalty-free. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, that was so excellent. <laughs> I wanted to read one part because the writing in this is so good. It is. That there should... We, we had to read something. Yeah. And this might not be, like, the funniest part, but I thought it was one that was just, like, very clever and very funny where... It's the scene where Anathema is trying to find her lost book mm -hmm. uh, where she crashed her bicycle. Oh, yeah. And uh, the part reads as Anathema tried every method of search she could think of. There was the methodical quartering of the ground. There was a slapdash poking at the bracken by the roadside. There was the nonchalant sidling up to it and looking out of the side of her eye. She even tried the one which every romantic nerve in her body insisted should work, which consisted of theatrically giving up, sitting down, and letting her eye glance fall naturally on a patch of earth, which, if she had been in any decent narrative, should have contained the book. <laughs> it's just so <laughs> self-aware and I know. hilarious. And, like, so true, though, like, yeah. how, like, when you are searching for something, you are kind of hoping, like, okay, now's now the moment. Now that I give up, I'll find it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just amazing. But, but, yeah, the writing in different parts like that is just so well done. 
I also need to mention a part that I think Ian and I appreciate more now in our second reading and in watching, which is Curly's houseplants. Oh, God, yes. Because now we have houseplants and we're like obsessed <laughs> with them. But Curly has all these houseplants and he's also obsessed with them. But in order to get them to grow the way he wants, he talks to them or more accurately yells at them. <laughs> he tells them to grow better. And then whenever a plant isn't doing well, he takes it, shows it around to the other plants and says, say goodbye to your friend and then like gets rid of it. <laughs> And in the show, it's just so funny because they just shake the plants and you can clearly tell it's just someone like sitting there, like shaking like the rattling leaves, the plants, but it's, it works so well and it's hilarious. It's, it's just his plants shaking in fear. <laughs> <laughs> I know that that whole scene, it was just done Amazing. beautifully. Uh, one part that we didn't talk about that I definitely want to mention is there's this whole like ongoing saga in both the book and the movie of this delivery man. Oh my God. Yes. Who is tasked with like going all over the world <laughs> to deliver the packages to the four horsemen yeah. containing like their items. Mm -hmm. And he's like so committed to his job. Yeah. And we even get like a little additional scene. <laughs> it's like referenced to in the book, but we get a scene of him and his wife. Yeah. Where she's in bed and she's like, Hey tagger. And he's like, uh, you know, I got to go out and do this like uh, one last delivery. Like I'm, I'm dedicated to the job. Someone's got to do it. I love you, Maude. Yeah. <laughs> he's just like this really committed, dedicated delivery man. Yeah. And the final delivery, like, you don't know what he reads, but he just, like, reads this message. And he's like, oh, God. And he, like, writes to his wife that he loves her. And yeah. he steps out in traffic and kills himself so that he can tell death in person. The message. The message he had to give him. <laughs> which is just, like. Amazing. So funny that he's just, like, the most committed delivery man, like, on the face of the earth. But good news. Once. Uh, Armageddon is averted. He's back to life and yeah. he comes to collect the stuff again. <laughs> <laughs> he's alive and he's yeah. not dead. And, and his, he can go back to Maude. He can go back to his wife. <laughs> Death also gets a great line in that where after he dies, yeah. the delivery man's like, am I dead? He's like, yes, but don't think of it as dying. Just think of it as beating the traffic. Yeah. <laughs> Leaving early to avoid the Leaving rush. early to avoid the rush. That was it. <laughs> it was so great. And those are our lightning rounds. We could do like a million more in lightning yeah. round, but honestly, just read the book. Just read it. We've got to keep it to four because yeah. we could talk about this all day. But <laughs> like truly the book is so funny and the show is so good. It is. Like I, I can't recommend either of them enough. Mm -hmm. uh, so please check them out. Yeah. Uh, if you're listening to this on iTunes, which R.I.P. will soon be gone. Yes. Or Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Long live Apple Podcasts. Um, you can leave us a star rating, which is super appreciated, or yeah. a written review. Uh, you can find us on Patreon mm -hmm. if you want to become a supporter of the show. Yes. Uh, our patrons, we post uh, articles about the books and uh, movies that we're 
uh, doing episodes on mm-hmm. like any kind of content that we find we that we think you might like. Also, our patrons get our bonus episodes, which mm-hmm. um, we've recently started um, with our bonus episodes. If there is another adaptation, uh, like we just did um, Murder on the Orient Express with the Kenneth Branagh version, but then our patrons got a bonus episode for the movie that was done in the 1970s. So if there's an extra adaptation, mm-hmm. we'll do that for our patrons. We also release our monthly schedule for our patrons so they know in advance what uh, episodes we'll be doing. Yeah. So um, just check us out on Patreon. We appreciate everyone who is a patron. You support us so much and we love you. Thank you. (laughs) And to all our listeners, um, please hit us up um, either on Facebook or on Twitter or Instagram. On Twitter, we are cover two credits with the number two. And we are spelled out normally on Facebook and Instagram. Also, our email is coveredcreditspod at gmail.com. And just give us any recommendations. We love getting them. Next week, uh, our episode, next next episode, I'm sorry, <laughs> we're bi-weekly, so it's not next week. Uh, in two weeks, we are doing an episode on The Shining, mm-hmm. uh, Stephen King's The Shining, which was a request from one of our patrons. Yeah. So we love doing requests, whether from our patrons or not, and we just encourage everyone to reach out to us and let us know what you want to hear. Yep. And until next episode. Until the apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you later. See you then. Bye. Bye.